to my little friend. And welcome to episode 40 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the podcast on philosophy, theology, social issues, and whatnot. This is your host, Glenn Peoples, and we're back. It has been a little while since the last episode came out, but as they say, better late than never. I do have a couple more episodes in the pipeline, but time is a bit short when you do this kind of thing in your spare time, so I make no promises, but I will get to those as soon as I can. In the meantime, we have arrived at a real milestone. This is episode 40, the big 4-0. I was just listening just earlier this evening to snippets of the very first episodes that came out just about three years ago in May 2008. Of course, the blog, Say Hello to My Little Friend, is a little bit older, going back two years earlier to May 2006. We've had several different pieces of opening theme music, each one better and badder than the last one. That sounds like a contradiction, but it's not badder in the good sense, I mean. The newest one is, of course, the one you've just heard. Sound quality has improved over time as I've upgraded my microphone and software. Some of the episodes have been admittedly pretty dry, I think, anyway. But others have actually been pretty interesting. As with blog posts, it's sometimes surprised me which ones have become real hits that have gained a lot more attention than others because you never really know in advance what people are going to like and what they're not going to be so interested in. The episode on intelligent design predictably got a lot of traffic as did one called Stop Being a Christian and Start Being a Person. Easily among the most widely listened episodes, probably the most widely listened episodes I think, have been the series called In Search of the Soul, where I looked at the mind-body problem from a philosophical as well as a theological and biblical point of view. Now, although that particular subject is one on, on which I profess not to be any sort of expert, really, that series had the ripple effect of me talking about the subject on the unbelievable radio show with Justin Briley in London. Uh, my talk on Sam Harris, Science and Morality, was a fun episode that a lot of people seem to to like so on the whole i guess what i'm saying is that it, it yeah I, I'm, I'm i'm biased because it's my own work but it looks like i probably did the right thing a few years ago when i started the podcast prompted incidentally by uh my good friend Didi warren's suggestion and she said you should start a podcast and i said no nah, who'd want to listen to that but i did uh Didi runs the preterist podcast which is a podcast that looks at biblical theology but Enough with the sentimental reminiscing. This is episode 40. And what is episode 40 about? Well, actually, it was going to be about something, it was going to be about something completely different uh, than what it is, in fact, about. Well, it was never going to be, but I thought it was going to be about something completely different than what it is, in fact, going to be about. Today on Facebook, a friend of mine asked me if I'd ever done a primer on divine command ethics, because that, that's something that I talk about from time to time, or rather write about at the blog. 
And you know what? I hadn't. And that surprised me because it's the kind of thing, given my interest, that I thought I would have done. So thanks to Joel's suggestion, that's what you're getting for episode 40. Now, as they say on those cooking shows, here's one that I prepared earlier. This is actually a lecture that I was asked to give at the University of Otago here in Dunedin some years ago now uh, to an undergraduate ethics class. So I figured it would be ideal as a primer in the subject. Now, in the blog, I've got a series called Nuts and Bolts, uh, where I provide fairly general introductions to subjects or terminology or, or whatnot. Well, this is a bit like a Nuts and Bolts podcast episode, where I'm going to be giving an overview of divine command or divine will ethics, and then I'll consider some of the most common objections. Now, the, episode, the, sorry, the lecture wasn't recorded, uh, so this is a fresh recording. It's not an old recording that I made, it's, uh, but it's based on the lecture notes that I had uh, for that talk. So this is what it's like to sit in on one of my classes, uh, and that's a none-too-subtle hint to any prospective employers. So let's go. So what is a divine command or a divine will-based theory of ethics? Well, it's, it's any theory of ethics where there is a very close connection between the will of God and what is morally right or wrong. So why should we do something? Well, because God wants us to do it. And what makes something wrong? God wants us not to do it. Those would be obvious examples. In the literature, this view is referred to in a couple of ways. Sometimes it's called theological voluntarism. Now, voluntarism refers to the, the use of the will. You know, you talk about doing something voluntarily. Uh, and, and that term is used because in this view, it's God's will that makes things right or wrong, or is closely related to their rightness or wrongness in some other way. The more common term, and the term that I'm going to be using here, is a divine command theory of ethics, sometimes called DCT when, when, when you're writing, you know, just to keep things yeah, easier to refer to, since right and wrong depend on God's commands. So it's important to say clearly from the beginning that DCT, Divine Command Ethics, is not a theory of goodness and badness. It is a theory of morality, of ethics, of rightness and wrongness. Rightness concerns that which is morally obligatory. We ought to do it, otherwise we'll be doing wrong. And wrongness concerns that which is morally prohibited. We must not do it. We ought not do it, or we are in the wrong. Defenders of divine command ethics explain that they intend the, the terms, the term command, commands, commanded, and so on, to be construed quite broadly so as to include God's intentions generally, regardless of how that will is expressed to us. For example, in religious texts, via some sort of special um, revelation like scripture, or even by way of moral intuition, depending on how we get that moral intuition. So let's look at the main forms of divine command ethics, and then the main objections to divine command ethics, and how they might be dealt with. So let's look at some various formulations of divine command ethics. Saying that morality boils down to God's commands can mean one of several things. Number one, it can mean that there is a relationship of identity. So it's possible to see obedience to God's commands as being identical to moral rightness. We might express this by saying, moral rightness just is doing what God's, God commands. 
or what the gods command if you happen to be a polytheist, but I'm not. Now, when we talk about two things being identical, and when we use the, t- the phrase just is, it pays to, as philosophers and only philosophers do, unless you're Bill Clinton, distinguish between two uses of the word is. When we say that song is catchy or that car is red, we're taking a subject like a song or a car and we're applying a predicate to it like catchiness or redness. We're bringing together two different things, for example, a car and the predicate or property property of redness. Now that's not a statement about identity. If I say that car just is red, I don't mean what I mean when I use that phrase uh, in terms of identity from a philosophical point of view. If I did mean it that way, then it would be crazy because I'd be saying that car is the same thing as the property of redness, which is obviously nonsense. The other way of using the word is, and that's the way that I'm talking about here, is not about predication, as in the two previous examples of songs and cars, but identification. When we make a statement about identity, we're not combining a subject with a property or predicate, but we're identifying the subject that is referred to in more than one way as being the same thing. A classic case of identifying uh, in this use would be at a police lineup. The officer says, ma'am, can you identify the man who robbed you? And the woman says, yes, that man right there, that is the man who robbed me. See how the word is is being used? What it's meant here is that the man standing there in the lineup and the man who committed the robbery are identical. They are one and the same person. So this is the way the term is is being used in the divine divine command theory of ethics where the property of moral rightness just is the property of being commanded by God. It's the same property, whatever you call it. Another clarification should be made on identity, similar to the previous one. When we say that two things are identical, we're not talking about two labels being accidentally coextensive. That is, uh, two categories that just happen to cover the same number of things or the same actions. Here's a claim about coextensivity. All right, now OUSA is the Otago University Students Association. Here's a claim. All students at the University of Otago are all the members of OUSA. Now the claim is that the property of being a student at the University of Otago is coextensive with the property of being a member of OUSA. So you're saying all members of this set are in fact members of that set as well because those properties happen to coincide. Now, perhaps this is true, but if we say that, we're not saying that the property of being a student at the University of Otago is the property of being a member of OUSA. They are distinct properties. It just happens that all the people who have one of those properties also have the other. So when the divine command theorist says, the property of being commanded by God is the property of moral rightness, She is not saying that all the things that have the property of rightness also turn out to have the property of being commanded by God and vice versa. The claim is not that these two properties are coextensive, but that they are the same property. They are identical. 
And lastly, we'll make a distinction between identity and meaning. None of what I've said so far is to suggest that the terms morally right and commanded by God mean the same thing. If they meant the same thing, what what I'm saying there is that they would be semantically equivalent. Okay, that, that, that's not what's being suggested here. In fact, we're already quite familiar with cases where two terms refer to one thing, but those terms are not semantically equivalent. Here's, here's a, what I think is a good example. The morning star is the evening star. It is. It's, it's Venus. Yeah, it's one object. But this doesn't mean that the words, the morning star, mean the same thing as the words the evening star. I mean, morning doesn't mean evening. You know, that's, that's silly. They obviously don't mean the same thing, but they refer to the same object. One more example. The pupil of Plato, okay, so Plato's pupil, is the teacher of Alexander the Great. Again, the words the pupil of Plato don't mean the same thing as the words teacher of Alexander the Great, and yet they do in fact refer to the same person. Aristotle, right? So in saying the property of being commanded by God is is the same as the property of moral rightness, we aren't saying that right just means commanded by God. Okay, so hopefully I've hashed out clearly enough now what I do and don't mean when I say that one version of divine command ethics trades in on the idea that Divine, the property of being divinely commanded is the property of moral rightness. Secondly, causality. A second major variety of divine command ethics is a causal divine command theory. In this view, what causes acts to be right or wrong is God's will. In other words, an act would not be morally right unless God commanded it, and his commanding it makes it the morally right thing to do. Likewise, nothing would be morally wrong unless God forbade it. Now, there are other forms of divine command ethics, but those are the dominant views, and I think that other variations are very very similar to them. For example, the theory that acts are morally right in virtue of the fact that they are commanded by God is very similar to the identity thesis outlined just recently. And the view that moral rightness depends on God's command is very similar to the causal version of divine command ethics. So I think pretty much any version that you come across is going to be like one of those two. So that, in a nutshell, is what a divine command theory of ethics boils down to. Well, what about some of the objections to it? I mean, apart from the objections that it simply happens to not be true, there are some fairly well-known objections. The first one I'll look at is what's loosely termed the Euthyphro Dilemma. I think undoubtedly the most famous objection to the divine command theory is based in the dialogue in Plato's Euthyphro. Now the Euthyphro objection is old and very well known. In Plato's Euthyphro, Socrates encounters a man named Euthyphro outside of a courthouse, and this man is bringing a lawsuit of murder against his father, and Socrates is just outraged by this. How could a man prosecute his own father? But the man explains that what he's doing is what the gods would want him to do, and hence it is the virtuous thing to do, regardless of how shocking it might seem to people like Socrates. Seeing that Euthyphro obviously considers himself knowledgeable on matters of theology and morality, 
Socrates asks him to explain what piety is. Euthyphro's famous answer was to say that piety then is that which is dear to the gods and impiety is that which is not dear to them. So Plato's first objection to this view is actually not very important because it has to do with the problems that Euthyphro's position has given the whole pantheon of many Greek gods. Because, according to the Greeks, the gods quarrel and disagree with one another over over what's pious and what's impious. There are some things that are both dear to the gods and hated by the gods, meaning that some things are both pious and not pious. So Euthyphro's understanding of piety must be mistaken. Now, I've got no interest in that objection because we can avoid that quite easily if there's only one god, which is what I happen to think is the case, or even if there were a a number of gods who didn't disagree, who weren't like the Greek gods. So Plato's objections that follow are the interesting ones, and they have become myth. Now, by this, I mean that it almost doesn't matter exactly what Plato meant by them, because in the literature, they've taken on a life of their own. They've become formulated in much more succinct terms, and there's kind of a traditional understanding of what the Euthyphro dilemma means. And it's really this received or traditional understanding of the Euthyphro dilemma that the divine command theorist has to deal with. The dilemma in Plato's terms consists of the question of whether the pious or holy is beloved by the gods because it is holy, or holy because it is loved of the gods. In modern times, the dilemma has been used as a critique of divine command ethics, and it's been phrased like this. Are morally good acts good because God wills them, or does God will them because they are morally good? Now, the second horn of the dilemma is not a divine command theory. It says that God commands things because they are moral already. So a divine command theorist embraces the first option of the of those two in modern language, that morally good acts are good because God wills them, or at least they'll, they'll do this if they hold a causal version of the divine command theory. So... Let's look at the first objection, which has been called by some the emptiness objection. The first objection to a divine command theory is probably the weakest, I think, anyway, and it's the easiest to deal with, so let's get it out of the way and then move on to more serious stuff. The emptiness problem is the objection that if things are right because God wills or commands them, then the statement that what God commands is right becomes an empty tautology because it really just means What God commands is what God commands. Now, this is one that, at the University of Otago, where I studied, there is a lecturer in philosophy of religion who says this to his class. He he teaches this. This attack on divine command ethics rests on the assumption that unless two terms mean the same thing, they can't identify the same thing, or that unless two terms mean the same thing, the thing identified by one term cannot cause the thing identified by the other. But, I mean, this is, it's its just not true. I mean, no one thinks this is true of language in general. Take the combination of words, the Twin Towers in New York City. Now, that clearly doesn't carry the same semantic meaning as the target of a horrible terrorist attack back in 2001. But they do identify the same thing. And it's not a tautology, you know, it's not an empty, meaningless utterance to say, The Twin Towers in New York City were the target of a horrific terrorist attack back in 2001. So this this claim that such statements are tautologies is wrong. Likewise, heat does not mean melting, 
but heat causes melting. So the fact that one thing causes another thing doesn't mean that they have to mean the same. So there's no tautology involved. So the emptiness objection is pretty empty. Important to note here is that of all the noteworthy defenders of divine command theory in the last 50 years, as well as throughout history as far as I can tell, it's very difficult, if it's even possible, to find one who maintains that morally right just means commanded by God. So actually what it is, is it's just a straw man. The second objection is the problem of arbitrariness, and this one's actually quite common. The second objection to taking this horn of the dilemma, you know, saying that something is moral just because God commands it, is that if something is commanded by God and is therefore moral, then morality is just arbitrary. And even if God willed something utterly horrible, then it would become the right thing to do, which just seems incredible. A well-known ethicist, Peter Singer, makes this argument. He says, and I quote, Some theists say that ethics cannot do without religion because the very meaning of good is nothing other than what God approves. Plato refuted a similar view more than 2,000 years ago by arguing that if the gods approve of some actions, it must be because those actions are good, in which case it cannot be the gods' approval that makes them good. The alternative view makes gods' approval entirely arbitrary. If the gods had happened to approve of torture and disapprove of helping our neighbours, then torture would be good and helping our neighbours bad. Now, just as an aside, you'll notice that he mischaracterized divine command ethics as a semantic theory. You know, he said some people think these two things just mean the same, but let's overlook that. We know that's wrong. Let's focus on the claim about arbitrariness. The main objection that he makes here is that if acts are right because God commands them or approves them or wills them, call it what you will, then those commands must be arbitrary and just any horrible thing could be morally right if God willed it. Uh, Greg Dawes at the University of Otago echoes this objection. I'm quoting from his course text on philosophy of religion. He says, and I quote, If God is not bound by any pre-existing moral standards, he could wake up tomorrow morning, speaking metaphorically, and de decree that torturing small children is now good. Okay, so you, you get the point of the objection. It's that, you know, if, if morality is just a matter of, of God willing something, then it wouldn't matter what God willed. It could be utterly awful. It would be right. It was just, it kind of seems crazy to some people. There are two responses to make to this. Firstly, one might simply bite the bullet and say, yes, if God commanded torture, and he could, they might say, then that would be the right thing to do. End of story. Shut up. Go away. After all, the fact that the outcome of a theory shocks us does not all by itself show that a theory is false. However, incidentally, that's that's not really the, the response I advocate, but it is a response, and so I should tell you about it. However, the major response to the objection is this. Yes. That would theoretically be true. If God commanded torture, then it would be the right thing to do. However, it is also true that God would not or could not command certain things, including torture. Using Greg Dawes as a local example again, he doesn't think that this defense is very promising. He says, and I quote, One popular defense may be rejected immediately. It consists in the view that while God could command us to torture small children, he would not do so. The difficulty with this position arises when one asks, why not? 
why would God not command us to small to torture small children? That'd be a, a fun tongue twister to teach the youngins. If the answer is that God is good, then one can ask what standard of goodness is being applied in making this claim. In other words, the claim here is that the response that God wouldn't command some things because and at any rate, he wouldn't command them. The response is that that reply leads us to the problem of independence because it implies that the good exists prior to God's command and that the moral facts are independent of God. Because God's following some rules if there are some things that he just wouldn't command. So God's not really the ultimate authority. That's how uh, Greg Dawes and, and a number of other objectors to divine command ethics see it. Now, as this is supposed to be about divine command ethics, a theory of rightness, substitute God does what is right for God is good. Because we're talking about rightness, not goodness. Goodness is a kind of broader subject, but the point is still clear. If we say that God would not command torture because he does what is right, then it would appear that God is obeying some higher moral rule, right? Well, actually, maybe not. Maybe the defender of divine command ethics doesn't have to say that God wouldn't command torture because he follows moral rules. It might be possible that God's commands cause acts to become morally right. God does not command as he does because he's following moral rules, and his commands are still not arbitrary. Well, how could that be? Well, the fact that God is not morally required to command as he does, doesn't mean that he has no reasons. It doesn't mean that he's being arbitrary. Arbitrary, by the way, just means not having any reasons. Maybe God does have reasons for commanding as he does, but they are not reasons that morally compel him. In other words, he's got some reasons, they just don't consist in moral rules that he has to follow. Consider this possible scenario. Just because of God's personality, God doesn't like the torture of children for fun. And so, because he doesn't like it, he wills that we don't do it. He doesn't like it because, let's just say, as some people do, that God is loving and kind and he would prefer not to see innocent people suffer for no good reason. Divine command theorist Edward Weiranger noticed, noticed, noted, I should say, that, and I quote, a divine command theorist might well believe that some features of God's character, for example, that he is essentially loving, place constraints on what he commands, end quote. So God is not commanding against something because it is morally wrong, because nothing is morally wrong until God commands. So there's no problem of independence, and there's also no problem of arbitrariness, because God has good reasons that motivate him to command as he does. Does this reply work? I think so, but some don't. It might still be objected that this fails, since it is no longer God's will or commands that make the action wrong. It is rather the fact that it causes suffering, something God doesn't like. So it's the fact of suffering and not God's command that makes torture wrong. Uh, this is actually an objection that was raised by one of my PhD examiners. And so I made some revisions to the thesis to specifically address this. I don't think that this, this objection works. In fact, I think it's a logical mistake. The objection here has the following form, where R 
uh, God's reasons for commanding. C stands for God's commands. And M is a moral obligation that we have. So the person who makes this objection is assuming the following. R is the reason for C. C is the reason for M. Therefore, R is the reason for M. Okay, if that's confusing, write it down. It initially looks persuasive, but it's logically problematic. Consider an example. Now, this is actually an example um, that was used by a philosopher named Baruch Brody. Just imagine that I'm out at work, sorry, I'm out after work drinking with my friends. My wife phones me asking me to come home. Now, she doesn't tell me this, but she's angry with me. And she doesn't tell me because I wouldn't do it otherwise. The reason she wants me to come home is so that she can fight with me because she wants to fight with me. She's angry with me and she wants to really have it out. The reason that I consider it's right to go home is that my wife has asked me to do so. But the reason that she wants me to go home is that she's angry and wants to fight. Now, remember that the form of the argument that I gave you? Let's plug these facts into the argument and see if it works. That my wife is angry and wants to fight with me is the reason that she's asked me to go home. That my wife has asked me to go home is the reason why I should go home. Therefore, the fact that my wife is angry and wants to fight with me is the reason why I should go home. Now, that doesn't follow at all. It's rubbish. In fact, my wife's anger and desire to fight with me would be a good reason not to go home, at least not yet. Let her cool down, maybe. What this shows is that the phrase, is the reason to use technical words, should not be taken as transitive here. Okay, so you can't transfer it all the way through the argument like that. It doesn't work. A second response to the objection is that it appears to equivocate between different understandings of reason. Because reason can mean more than one thing. There can be epistemic reasons and causal reasons. When we say that God has reasons, for commanding as he does, we mean that he has epistemic reasons, which are the type of reason that we might reflect on before making a decision. So you sit down and say, now why should I do this? And the whys that you come up with are your reasons. So you've got a reason for making the choices that you do. But the causal divine command theory does not use the word this way when it says that God's commands are the reasons that things are right or wrong. Rather than using the word reason in an epistemic sense, the divine command theory here uses it in a causal sense. Consider these two sentences. Think about them. Number one, the epistemic reason that I ate my broccoli is that I love the taste. Okay, So I sat there and thought about it and said, you know what, I'm going to eat that broccoli because I want to and I want to because I like the taste and I want that taste, so I'm going to eat it. Number two, the causal reason that I gained the health benefits of eating broccoli is that I ate it. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the causal reason that I gained the health benefits of broccoli is that I love the taste of broccoli. Otherwise, I could gain the health benefits of broccoli without actually eating it, because just by liking it, as I do, that would cause the health benefits. And it would make no sense at all to say the epistemic reason that I got healthy, that I gained the health benefits of broccoli, is that I love the taste of broccoli. Because my body's gaining health benefits is not even voluntary. My body doesn't think about it and have reasons. Okay, it's just a cause. Eating broccoli causes certain things without any thinking going on. 
So the objection doesn't really seem to overcome the explanation that God may have non-moral reasons for commanding as he does. Things are caused to be right because God wills or commands them, and God may well have reasons, although not determinative causes, for commanding as he does, namely reasons that are grounded in what God likes, for example. So even if God's commands are the sole cause of actions becoming right or wrong, that doesn't mean that morality or God's commands are arbitrary. So we can avoid this objection. We don't have to end up with what's called the problem of independence. We can say there are reasons for God's commanding as he does. His commands are not arbitrary. And God is the supreme moral authority. We're not creating an independent moral authority in reasoning this way. All right, so that's that objection dealt with. Let's move on to another kind of objection called the problem of pluralism. One familiar objection to morality having theological roots is the fact of religious pluralism. I've heard this said before. I'll say, you know, I think that the the facts about rightness and wrongness are grounded in God's commands. And someone says, which God? You know, as though there are, in fact, lots of gods out there. Which God sets the standard? Uh, Bernard Gert, philosopher, ethicist, and author, rejects the claim that a necessary and sufficient condition for a rule being a genuine moral rule is that it has a divine origin. In fact, he takes the flaw with this claim to be an obvious difficulty. He tackles the claim that morality can be defined as commanded by God and calls it one of the more popular definitions of what it takes for a rule to be a moral one. I'm going to ignore that. It's not quite right. But he, he means to refer to divine command ethics. That much is clear. He says, and I quote, This definition suffers from the obvious difficulty that different religions offer different rules that are supposedly given by God. Hence, even if it were an adequate definition, it can never be known if it is satisfied. No one can ever know if the rules that are said to come from God really do so. So his argument goes like this. Number one, some different groups of people disagree about what moral rules God has given. Number two, if there is disagreement about what moral rules God has given, then not only does nobody know what any of those moral rules are, but nobody can know what any of those moral rules are. Number three, therefore nobody knows or can know what any of the moral rules that God has given are. Actually, the only premise that he gives us is, is number one, that there are these disagreements. But it's clear enough that premise two is doing the work. Yeah, the, uh, the idea that if there is disagreement about what moral rules God has given, then nobody can know what rules God has really given. Is it true? He seems to be depending on a principle that goes something like this. For any source of facts S, where people disagree about what facts S supply, then none of those people know or can know whether or not they are correct. But that's not true. I mean, nobody believes that's true, surely. What if one or some of those people are correct and the others are wrong? I mean, it seems kind of simple putting it that way, but it happens all the time. Scientists on some contentious issues, on like some issues of environmental concern, take discussions about, I don't know, the possible risks of genetic modification or climate change or, I don't know, any issue. Some scientists disagree about what facts the natural world is showing us. Does that mean that they must be all wrong and none of them can know that they are correct? Well, that doesn't seem very plausible. 
I don't think that's true. So there. What about a further objection? What about unbelievers, people who don't believe that there is a God? Can they have moral knowledge too? Here's an objection. I think I think I'll just check. Yes, this one also comes from Bernard Gert. He's talking about the claim that morality requires God as the foundation of morality. And he says, and I quote, It is also a consequence of this view that atheists cannot consider anything to be a moral rule. Further, not only atheists, but deists or anyone who does not believe that God gave persons any rules to live by would also be logically excluded from holding anything that is a moral rule. Oh, sorry, from holding that anything is a moral rule. Also, anyone who doubted that the rule against killing came from God would necessarily have to doubt that it was a moral rule. None of those consequences is true. Hence, it cannot be a necessary condition for a rule to be a moral rule that it be a command of God. All right. So basically, the argument is as follows, where Q is the act of knowing moral facts. Premise number one. If C is the cause of our ability to Q, then person P cannot Q unless he believes that C exists. Premise number two. P does Q, and he does not believe that C exists. Premise number three. Therefore, C is not the cause of our ability to Q. Now, this argument is what's called logic unsound. Premise number one is just false. The premise states that if something is the cause of our ability to do something, then we can't do that something unless we believe in the cause. Well, that's just not true. Consider this example. Certain biological facts about the windpipe and lungs bring it about that a human being can breathe. Okay, that's the cause of our ability to breathe. But it doesn't follow that since a member of a scientifically illiterate tribe of Bushmen doesn't know that the windpipe or the lungs exist, that he can't breathe. <laughs> In fact, the scientific implications of what's being said here are just absurd. It leads to the view that we can't know that any phenomenon at all occurs until we know what causes it. Well, that's, that's generally not the way science works. Usually we discover that some phenomenon does occur and then we try and figure out what causes it. Usually it's not the other way around. So the fact that God's will is what causes moral facts to exist doesn't mean that you can't know that moral facts exist until you know that God exists or that God is the cause because you discover these moral facts and then you start thinking about what might be the cause of them, just like most other areas of life. It's worth noting that a divine command theory of what makes things right and wrong is quite consistent with a view like moral intuitionism, which is a view on how we can know that some things are right or wrong. There's no contradiction in thinking that God created people to function so that when they see outrageous acts of barbarism, they intuitively recognize the act as wrong, even though they don't realize that the thing that makes it wrong is God's command or God's will. One final objection to a divine command theory is that it, it doesn't even get off the ground because, well, there's no God. Yes, yeah, so if there's no God, then obviously there are no divine commands. I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, this is, and I say this to an unbelieving audience, 
it's an intellectually unsatisfying solution. You do a much better job of responding to a position by getting inside of it to show that it breaks down internally. Give it a fighting chance. But secondly, it may even be possible that a divine command theory is compatible with atheism. In fact, I think it is. Maybe it's true that what would be required to make an act morally right or wrong is the command or prohibition of God. And since there is no God, there are no moral facts as suggested by Friedrich Nietzsche or J.L. Mackey. So I don't actually think this is a way of defeating a divine command theory of ethics. It's just a way of saying that there are no moral facts, so there are no things that God needs to command, and therefore we don't need God, according to this response. Nothing here implies that a divine command theory of ethics is true. I haven't said that. I'm inclined to think it is true, actually, but I haven't said that it's true. What I have said is that many of the traditional and modern arguments used against the theory are in need of serious reconsideration and amendment if they are to be successful. I think the ball is in the court of those who think that a divine command theory is obviously silly or laughable, because if you approach the subject thinking that, then you're in for a big surprise. All right, students, put away your books and pencils. That is the end of the lecture. And it's the end of episode 40. That is a significant number, is it not? 40. And we've done it. And I plan to bring you plenty more too. Hey, look, if you find Say Hello to My Little Friend interesting, if you like this podcast and you think that someone else might enjoy it too, tell them. Seriously, let them know. I want to put this out there for as many people as possible to benefit from it, assuming anyone does. They can download episodes from the website or you can do a search in the iTunes store for the podcast called Say Hello to My Little Friend or you can search for the author, Glenn People. That's me. Uh, That's Glenn with two N's, by the way. And if you don't tell at least five of your friends, five of your friends in the next five days, you're burning hell forever. As I said at the outset, I do have a couple more episodes in the works for you. Keep your eye on the blog to see when those will be coming out, because I will let you know in advance. That's www.beretta-online.com. Until next time, this is your host, Glenn Peoples. I'm getting some funny looks. Saying, until then, and signing off, another episode of... Say hello to my little friend!